How about now? So you can purchase these on Amazon. I think they're six bucks. They're just, they're just uh, the book of Ruth with pages to write in. So you can follow along, make sermon notes, and as as we go along. So I encourage you to buy these things, so you can uh, follow along. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we want to thank you again for this opportunity that we have to gather in the name of our Lord Jesus who died on the cross in our place to make atonement for our sins and to satisfy you. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would stir in our hearts and dwell in this sanctuary and that we would have an awareness of your powerful presence among us, that you would be our teacher, that you would guide us into the understanding of your word and ultimately as we are exposed to your word that we are changed. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, um, a couple weeks ago when Hanson was speaking, he uh, criticized my choice of movies, and so this is my opportunity at a rebuttal. Um, just because a movie's old doesn't mean it doesn't have some great one-liners that are worth quoting. Thank you very much, Hanson. Like, like Casablanca, 1942, The Holy Grail, 1975, The Princess Bride, 1997. Of course, the most quoted movie the most quoted movie line of all time is, any guesses? Gone with the Wind, 1939. So just because a movie's old, Hanson, doesn't mean it can't be quoted. Okay, so one slightly less classic movie with a more memorable one-liner was the 1996 movie Jerry Maguire. So uh, in the movie, Tom Cruise is giving the reasons why Renee Zellweger should take him back. And so he's going on. And finally, she interrupts him from talking. And she says, you had me at hello, which, of course, became super famous. You had me at hello. Here's a curious uh, side thought. Kenny Chesney, the Western singer, he saw the movie Jerry Maguire in 1996. In 1999, he wrote a song based on you had me at hello called You Had Me From Hello in 1999. Then, it gets more interesting, he marries Renee Zellweger in 2005. Okay, so the, the marriage only lasted four months, but the song went platinum. So, all right, last week I told you about how I just got back from a family reunion. We try to get together every year, and sometimes we go camping, which, which we did this last year, or this last, uh, this summer. Sometimes we rent a house. And on one occasion, we had rented a house, and my daughter, Jessica, had made two pounds of bacon and a fresh pot of coffee. So she talks often when she has a cup of coffee, and so she'll take her coffee and, and walk around waiting for it to cool down. She made the mistake of setting her coffee down. Someone dumped her coffee out and filled her coffee mug up with bacon grease. <laughs> True story. So she, we're, nobody bothered telling her, and we all saw it. She's walking around the kitchen talking. She puts her coffee down, and then she puts her coffee back down again. Eventually, she does. She drinks the bacon grease. But at this point, she doesn't want to let on that she's been punked. So she keeps drinking it. First slide, please. She keeps drinking it, and uh, she, we have since purchased these matching hats that said, you had me at coffee based on you had me at hello, only we've made the conjunction of me and at, so you have had meat coffee. So 
we, we wear these hats because there are actually very few people who have had meat coffee. My daughter Jessica has had meat coffee. You are welcome to uh, tease her. All right, so after a very lengthy letter to the Romans, it's been filled with some amazing teaching on some serious subject. Paul uh, returns to the personal matters. He began in chapter 1. He only got halfway through chapter 1 before he goes off on this theological treatise. But now he's come back to halfway through chapter 1, and he's ending his letter now with hello rather than and in closing. Second slide, please. So here's a basic outline of the Pauline letters. Grace, I thank God for you. Hold fast to the gospel. For the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. And Timmy says hi. So, thank you, I don't need that any longer. So and Paul is following that basic outline today, and so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me where we left off. Romans chapter 16, verse 1. We're going to cover the entire chapter today. <clears throat> so again, he, he interrupts his letter and he inserts the doctrinal treatise in the middle of the letter. Now he's come back to basically the middle of chapter 1. He's returning to his autobiographical comments. He, uh, he's thanked God for the Roman church. Uh, he, he, he says he, he, he cares for them and loves them even though he's never met any of them. He's never been to Rome. And the reason we are told, remember last week, we were told that he wanted to plant churches to labor where other people had not labored before. That was chapter 15, verse 20. But he still has a great affection for them. And he, he, he loves them and he prays for them. He longs to see them. He wants to invest in their life. He said that back in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And he wants to encourage them and be encouraged by them. Chapter 1, verse 12. So he's returning, after all of this doctrinal treatise, he's returning to the beginning of the letter. Remember, from, from chapter 1 to chapter 3, he talks about human sinfulness. Um, he talks about uh, the work of dying to sin and ongoing sanctification from chapters um, 6 through 8. Uh, he talks about the majestic doctrines of, of election and predestination and effectual call in chapters 9 through 11. Um, he then applies all of this doctrine to the church, saying this is, because this is true, this is how you ought to live, this is how you should treat one another, chapters 12 through 15. And because these things are true, you have no reason to withhold your spiritual gift from the church. You have no reason for uh, forcing other people to think like you think because your convictions are more important than they are. So having re having said all this, now he's returning to the beginning, he's returning to his opening statements, but we would say, but really, Paul, you had me at hello. Uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 1. <clears throat> I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord and in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she's been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. 
Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners. They were well known to the apostles. They were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those, who, those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who's been a mentor to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nernia, and his sister Olympus, and the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And the churches of Christ greet, all the churches of Christ greet you. So Paul begins with Phoebe. He says, he commends her as a servant of Sancria. The word servant here you recognize as diakonos, which, which can just simply mean that you are a servant, you're, you're, you, you serve the Lord or serve a family. But I think here he's meaning it in the technical sense that Phoebe is an officer of the church. She's a deacon, she's a, or deaconess. Um, he, she, uh, she has this, this position in the church of Sancria. Remember Sancria, this was on my, one of my tests in seminary. Where did Paul get his haircut? The answer is in Sancria. So that's just a little bit you, that'll be on the test later on today. Sancria <laughs> is actually the seaport of Corinth. It's um, just outside of town here. And so Phoebe is this officer at the church of Sancria. Paul is writing from Corinth. He also says in addition to her being a deacon, he says she's a patron. So she's evidently someone of social status and rather wealthy because she not only holds an office in the church, she's a, a benefactor, a supporter. We think that because Paul mentions her first and at greater length than the rest, that it's probably Phoebe who's bringing this letter, the letter to the Church of Romans from St. Crea or Corinth where Paul wrote it and makes the sea travel to Rome where she is presenting it. And so Paul tells them that uh, She's, she's an important person. She's a valuable person. You need to treat her with honor and respect. Um, Dr. Barnhouse says, never was there a greater burden carried by such, a, such tender hands. The theological history of the church through the centuries was in that manuscript, which she brought with her. The Reformation was in that baggage. The blessings of multitudes in our day was carried in those parchments. So that was an important job that Phoebe had to bring this letter, which has meant so much to the church throughout all these generations, that she's bringing this, this letter to Rome. So next, Paul goes on to mention two people who we've bumped into many times, especially in our study through the book of Acts. He says Prisca, the diminutive form of Prisca is Priscilla. So you remember Priscilla and Aquila, same person, Prisca. Um, he says, greet uh, Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers. They risked my neck. They risked their neck for my. I thought that was a really curious turn of turn of phrase. They risked their neck. So actually, look it up, and that's exactly what the Greek says. They risked their neck. I don't know where that idiom came from, but apparently they had risked their necks for for Paul. Probably when they were in Ephesus and there was that riot, they risked their necks to 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 help Paul. They're they're a married team. For some reason, Paul and Luke often mention Prisca or Priscilla before Aquila, the, the woman before the man, which was an unusual way of introducing them. 
So we think because of that, Priscilla probably had a higher social rank than her husband, or she had, may have been the more spiritually gifted of the two of them. They were tent makers by trade, and so that allowed them to work wherever they, they were. They were able to get a job, and they helped Paul in Rome and in Corinth and Ephesus. We think that they were expelled from Rome in 49 AD when Emperor Claudius uh, expelled the Jews because of rioting. The Jews were expelled from Rome in 49 because of rioting, and he says, over a certain individual by the name of Crestus. We think that's a reference to Christ. So the Jews were rioting about the Christians, and they were expelled in 49. Um, Claudius then uh, rescinds his expulsion in, in the year uh, 54. So at, apparently at that time, Prisca and Aquila come back to Rome, back to the church that they were part of. You also might remember that um, they were fairly mature in their understanding of doctrine and faith. They met Apollos, who was an outstanding orator. He had uh, special abilities, which they recognized. And we were told in Acts 18, uh, 26, that they took him aside to explain to him more fully the way of the gospel. And so they, they were involved. They were, they were gifted. They were important people. They're, they're a, a couple that the entire Gentile church owes a debt of gratitude. And we are told beyond that, uh, Paul says, greet the church that meets in their house. So the church, you know the term ecclesia, the church, there were many churches, but there were also many home churches called ecclesioli. So they have the, the big church, the ecclesia, and, and there were often many home churches. Not at all like today's house church movement, which is usually representative of uh, groups that are disenfranchised. They, they, they don't like organized church, so they meet in their homes. Um, this is not what we're talking about. In the first century, there weren't a lot of church buildings, which meant um, benefactors like Phoebe would open their larger homes up and people would gather together in these homes um, for worship and instruction. So apparently Priscilla, Prisca, and Aquila had done that. So Paul is greeting the church that meets in their home. Now, verse 7, we're told to greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners. They're well known to the apostles. They were in Christ before me. Paul says four things about these two. Um, they're his relatives. Uh, which could mean that they were actually related personally to him, but probably it doesn't. Probably just means that they're Jews like he was. Um, they were in prison with him. I have no idea when that took place. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us. Three, that they were well known to the apostles. Here's an interesting thing, because <clears throat> some of your translations would read, they were outstanding among the apostles. And this has led to a heresy which says that they are the... Uh, missing apostles, and that Junia was the first woman apostle. That's not what the text says. That's what some of our English translations lead us to believe. In fact, the Greek just says they were notable among the apostles. So your ESV version is probably more accurate in this case. They were just well known among the apostles. But it's the last one that says they were in Christ before he was. This is interesting because when did Paul become a Christian? Well, in the very earliest stages of the church, shortly after the resurrection, back in the early 30s. He, Paul says, these two 
Jews were Christians before I was. Now that would mean that they would have known Paul in Jerusalem when he was a persecutor of the church. They would have known Paul as a persecutor. And somewhere along the line, they had gone from Jerusalem to Rome and must have been part of the initial Christian fellowship in Rome. So that's a pretty important uh, recognition that, that Paul is giving them. There's, they're in Rome from the earliest stage of the Christians in that presence. Um, verse 13, here's another really curious one. I'm, I don't have time to go through all of these names, and some of them are just speculation anyway. But verse 13 says, uh, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. Uh, William Barclay says, this is one of the hidden romances of the New Testament. Uh, it's interesting because, leave your finger here in Romans, but turn back to Mark chapter 15, verse 21, because you find Rufus mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. Now, in Romans 15, 21, we, we encounter Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is a town in North Africa. Simon, this North African is, Jew, is in Jerusalem when Jesus is being crucified. Uh, Mark 15, 21 says that they were they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who's coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, um, to carry his cross. Now, why would Mark just in mentioning the guy's name who helped carry the cross, also mention who his kids were, that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Well, Mark would if, one, Alexander and Rufus were well-known among the Christians, and two, remember that Mark, when he's writing his gospel, is primarily writing his gospel to the Roman church, where Alexander and Rufus would have been well-known in that church. Now, apparently, it's... Uh, uh, 15 years, 25 years later, and now uh, Simon is probably not alive anymore, but we still find Rufus taking care of his mother in uh, the church of, of Rome. So we have great probability that we're talking about the son of the guy who carries the cross of, of Christ. And then this is a little bit of an imagination, but you know, here's... Simon, who's forced to carry at least the patibulum, the crossbar of the cross, and he evidently stayed around uh, after carrying it to the place of crucifixion and watched. And somewhere along the line, possibly as Jesus is dying and he's speaking to the thief on the cross, Simon is converted. He then takes his faith from Jerusalem back to Cyrene in, in North Africa, where uh, he's he starts a church, and apparently his, his family is also converted. Uh, verse 16 says, uh, here's the end of the greetings to them. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. We see the same command a couple other times, 1 Corinthians 16.20 and 2 Corinthians 13.20. There's a lot of misunderstanding about this, and we need to get it straight. This is not a sensual kiss, and this is not a kiss that's lip to lip. This is a kiss on the cheek that was part of the cultural greeting of the time. Men did not kiss women, women did not kiss men. Women greeted each other with a kiss on the cheek, men greeted one another, as they still do in some cultures uh, in, in the East. Uh, they, it's, a, it's a sign of affection, it strengthens bonds that we, that we as believers have this physical bonding, this physical contact with one another. But I want you to note the command here is to greet and the means of greeting is 
the kiss. So the command we should still be following. We should still be greeting one another physically and affectionately, but please don't kiss me. I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the hugging thing too. Uh, Nick Marvin knows I don't like that kind of close contact and he loves to make close contact. <laughs> I, I think perhaps we can still hug each other. You may hug one another. And, but I think that we're accomplishing this when we, when we greet one another with a respectful handshake and, and a warm hug. I think, I think we're, we're still doing that. But I don't think the kiss um, is, means what it does, what it did back then. Uh, verse 17. <clears throat> I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Now, don't you think it's rather strange that here Paul is giving these cordial greetings and slapping each other on the back and kissing one another, and he interrupts these cordial greetings with this uh, warning uh, regarding the dangers th th that come on onto the church. Now, it's not unlike Paul to close his letter with warnings. He does so in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians and in Galatians and in uh, 2 Thessalonians, uh, uh, 1 Timothy. It's, it's not unnatural. It just strikes us odd, the placement of this all. He's, he's warning us to watch out or to beware. Maybe, you know, maybe there's a logical juxtaposition because he's just finished talking about the warm embrace of, 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 of unity, the kiss of peace, and placing that against this uh, unfortunate fact of strife and division, which can tear a church apart. He tells us that this division, this strife, can happen in two ways, either because of internal conflict or because of uh, false doctrines. And so in either case, it gives these two warnings, two commands, watch out and avoid them. The troublemaking that he's talking about appears to be deliberate, not accidental, because verse 17 says that these people cause, they make, um, poieo, they, 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 they're the cause of division. They're, they're making it happen. And what Paul has in mind is that whoever it is that causes division in the church is not serving the church. He's not, in this case, talking about heresies that are introduced to the church. He's talking about people who are bringing division, and he tells us to watch out for them because those people who bring division in the church are not serving Christ. They're serving only themselves. Daniel Doriani notes, typically such individuals are knowledgeable. They usually have considerable abilities. They're leaders in the sense that they have enthusiasm to get people to follow them. Um, generally, they're used to teaching and they want to fill this role in the church. Unfortunately, although the Bible warns us to make full proof of those who want to be teachers, people like this are usually warmly welcomed. They're critical of people who don't, seem, who don't see things as they do or join them in pushing their own personal concerns. Whenever anyone does not go their way, and not all people do because God always has some in the church who are not easily taken in, who care for other believers and who are not serving themselves. 
these unbalanced and divisive teachers pull most of their followers away and start another fellowship. Their fellowship is always presented as more biblical, more faithful, and the truer church. What does Paul say that we should do about it? He does not say instruct them. He does not say tolerate them or correct them. He tells us quite clearly, avoid them. Lest we miss the point, Paul adds in Titus 3.10, as for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. That's how serious the case is. In Romans 16, 18, Paul explains his reasoning here. He says, for such persons don't serve our Lord, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Again, no one who stirs up division is serving Christ. They do this not because they're trying to win a following for Christ. They do this because they want to win a following for themselves have nothing to do with them. Avoid them. Verse 19. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's tempting to ignore this verse because it's a little hard to understand, and we want to think, well, I don't know what he's talking about. Let's move on. But I think it's really interesting to give this a little more extensive consideration because Romans 16, 20 is obviously a reference to Genesis chapter 3 where Satan comes in and causes the fall of our original progenitors. Remember Adam and Eve, they're placed in the Garden of Eden. God tells them that they have authority, they have rule over all of the lower forms, all of the created order. They are free to manage the earth and tend it as they want to. They can do what they want to. They can eat what they want to, with one exception. And the Lord tells them that you can eat from anything here, any of the trees, with the exception of you may not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you, ate, if you eat from that tree, you will die. Here's where Satan comes into the picture. Satan goes into the garden and he approaches the woman and he suggests to her, that if God puts any prohibition on you, if God tells you you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he might as well be telling you you can't do anything because God is unreasonable in placing restrictions upon us. God cannot be good because he doesn't have our best interests in heart. If he makes any prohibition, um, uh, he should allow us to do whatever we want to. This, curiously, this is the first aspect of Satan, of three aspects of Satan's prohibition is the temptation to doubt God's benevolence. And it's exactly what we are tempted to do today. If we are told that you should obey God, we balk at it because we want to believe that if God truly loves us, he would let us do anything we want to do. And this whole concept of obeying God chafes us because we think it's unreasonable that God should place any prohibitions on us. Now, the second aspect of this temptation has to do with doubting God's truthfulness. So when, he, when he approaches the woman, she replies, we may eat from any tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree of, uh, that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. And Satan replies with a flat contradiction. He tells the woman, you will not. You will not surely die. He's flatly calling God a liar. 
you will not die. And so now, who is the woman to believe? She has these two amazing creatures. One's telling her one thing and one's telling her another. And how is she going to resolve this? Well, she decides that she's going to trust her own observations and her own judgment rather than the word of God. And so she eats from the tree and she gives some of it to her husband as well. This also is a temptation we continually face today because we also, when we're put against something that we don't like in the word, we tend to prefer our own opinions over what God has clearly said in his word. Who shall we believe? Your wise discretion or the God who speaks truth? Now, the third aspect of the temptation, this is what actually turns Eve to disobedience because Satan told her that God has placed these restrictions upon her because he does not want her to reach her full potential. God knows that when you eat of the, the tree, your eyes will be open, you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Now, apparently, and I don't fully understand this, Eve also wanted in some aspect to be like God. And when Satan did that, he was met with disastrous consequences. And when Eve does that, attempting to be like God, she and Adam also encountered disastrous consequence because God said on the day that you eat that fruit, you will die. And instantly, their fellowship with God, the spirit ability that they had with God, dies. And eventually, their physical bodies die as well. They hid from God because they were no longer in that communion, that face-to-face -face communion with God. They hid from him, and they began to die. And so God approaches them, and God subjects them to a curse. But in the midst of the curse, he also makes the, a promise. So the curse is given to us in the midst of... Uh, excuse me, the promise is made to us in the midst of the curse that God is giving to the serpent, the one that Satan used to mislead the woman. And God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you and your, your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is known to theologians as the Proto-Evangelium, the, um, the first gospel, Proto being beginning or the, the forevision of and Evangelium, the evangel, the, the good news, the first good news in the Bible. And it comes in the midst of this curse that God is giving upon Adam and Eve and the serpent for, the, for their disobedience. What's striking here is that it is a promise of curse, but a promise of blessing. It is a promise also of conflict. There's three levels of conflict here. He says there's going to be conflict between Satan and the woman. There's going to be conflict between Satan offspring, those who follow Satan, and the woman's offspring, those who follow her example in faith. And finally and ultimately, there is conflict between Satan and Christ. Now, we know how Satan bruised the heel of Christ. Satan thought he had achieved a great victory by thwarting God's plan of redeeming fallen man. Satan delighted when Jesus was placed upon the cross. He rejoiced with the terrible agony of the crucifixion. He must have delighted in every aspect, thinking that he had finally triumphed over God's plan, thwarting his Messiah. He did, in fact, bruise his heel, but 
he was wrong that he had thwarted God's plan because Jesus triumphantly rose from the grave. Now, having reviewed that Old Testament story that Paul is referring to in Romans 16:20, we can see then that Genesis chapter 3 is a prophecy, and so is Romans chapter 16:20. Remember in uh, Revelation. See, I said Revelation, Dave, not Revelations. Thank you. <laughs> uh, 16.11. Revelation 16.11, I think. Um, there's this prophecy that uh, they shall overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And I want you to observe two things here. How is Satan ultimately crushed? Well, we would say he's crushed first and foremost because of the blood of Christ Jesus, which was shed on the cross. But Revelation also tells us he was defeated, too, by the word of our testimony. What is the word of our testimony? God is true. God speaks the truth. Everything that God said is true. I trust what God says, not what I feel, not what I hear, not what I'm told. I trust God. We are told that, too, is an aspect of Satan's defeat, our testimony. And so that's what Paul is saying here. He says that Satan will be crushed under our feet. Now, we know ultimately he's crushed under the feet of Christ. But somehow, we, the church, are used as part of the crushing uh, of Satan. Now, Paul further adds that this crushing will take place soon. And that's another problem, isn't it? But the word soon can mean one of two things. It could mean that it happens quickly. It's not going to take very much time when it starts to happen. Or it could mean that this happening is just around the corner. Obviously, that was almost 2,000 years ago. There's no way that you could say this crushing of Satan is just about to happen. So what could he have possibly meant? Well, if he meant that it was just about to happen, he must have been, uh, my conjecture, he must have been referring to the fall of Jerusalem, which would take place in 12 or 13 years. And this crushing of Satan would be the end of Jewish oppression of Christianity, and particularly the Judaizers who were infiltrating the church. That would bring that to an end. That's, they're being used by Satan. Could mean that, but more probably he just means that when it happens, it's going to happen fast. It's going to happen suddenly. Leon Morris says the promise of this victorious issue, the defeat of Satan by Christ, undergirds, undergirds the fight of faith. There's, this is something we must grasp. Satan is our enemy as well as God's, and he's very fierce. But God is our champion and the ultimate victor. Verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quarnus greet you. Okay, so it's not actually a classic movie, but Andy Griffith's show was like a classic TV show, am I right? So Andy's on the phone with Gomer Pyle. Remember, Gomer has the cousin Goober, right? So Gomer and Goober are on the phone, and they're talking with Andy, and they're talking away, and then Gomer says, uh, Goober says, hey, and then Andy says, hey to Goober. So that's another famous quotable line. And that's what's happening here. Um, Paul is sending his greetings. And Timothy and the rest of the gang are there. And Timmy says, say hey to the Romans. 
And then the rest of the gang says, the rest of the gang says, hey. So Paul is sending his greetings, first of all, from Timothy, but also from the rest of the gang, Lucius, Jason, Sosipater. And he calls these guys his relatives. Probably, again, he doesn't mean they're part of his family, but they're probably Jews. Uh, Timothy is Paul's uh, protege. During his second missionary trip, Paul picks up Timothy and Lystra. Timothy has a Jewish mother, but a Greek father. So he could technically be Jewish because he has a Jewish mother. But Timothy's in a u unique position as both Jew and Greek um, to minister to the church. Paul thought a lot of Timothy. Um, it, he, at the end of Philippians, he says, I have, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your, in your welfare. So Timothy, who is known to these Romans, is also someone who supports them. And Paul says, Timothy says, hey, in verse 22, Paul mentions Tertius, or Tertius mentions himself, actually. The word Tertius means third, from which we get the word tertiary, the third. Uh, in, in the vast majority of cases, Paul does not write his own manuscript. He's dictating it to a secretary who's known as an amanuensis. This, this goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Jeremiah had an amanuensis, a secretary that wrote what he spoke. And one example, Galatians 6, well, the end, of, the end of, of Galatians, someone else has been writing the letter for him, and then Paul signs the end, and he says, see what large letters I write in. So Paul doesn't generally write his own letters because we think Paul had bad eyesight, so it was difficult for him to, to scrawl these long, extensive letters. And here, Tertius is dutifully recording what Paul is telling him under the inspiration of the Spirit. Uh, verse 25, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that has been kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the faithful to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So here we find, as we close the book of Romans, that Romans is a very dense, glorious book, and one is saturated with, with the reminders of the triune God and the redemption that he has accomplished. And so it comes to no surprise then, as Paul is closing his letter, he, he has this spontaneous burst of praise where he says, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. To the only God, to God alone, should there be glory. This, by the way, is exactly what Hanson's going to be teaching about beginning this Tuesday night, the soli deo gloria, only for God's glory, only to the glory of God. And that's how Paul ends this letter, to this soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be glory forever. R.C. Sproul says, in every generation all over the world, the gospel that Paul lovingly, jealously, passionately sets forth here in his magnum opus is obscured, attacked, and brought almost to ruin. But Paul's prayer that people would be established in the gospel forever has borne witness by the history of the church Despite all heresies, persecutions, and distortion, the gospel that was revealed here continues to be manifested by the wisdom, power, and establishment of God, who alone receives the glory. 
And what a beautiful benediction. So now we, we say goodbye to Paul's letter to the Romans. It's been interesting. It's been educational. It's been captivating, challenging. But really, Paul, you had me at hello. Let's pray. It's been a, a long time that we've been in this book, Father, and we thank you so much for the um, doctrine that we have learned through it and for the challenges that have been laid before us. And I realize that we are not all agreement in agreement with this Pauline doctrine, but it is the Word of God. These words are recorded for our edification and our growth and our understanding of what is true. And unlike the woman with Satan, when we are confronted with two approaches to what is true, we declare that you are true, your word is true, and whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not, we embrace your word because you are a truth teller. And we want to bring our hearts, our minds, our understanding in subjection to your word. And we thank you for this uh, great work that we have been privileged to study. I ask that you would please bless each heart here today and enrich us through it. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.